Wondering how to navigate local, city, state, or the federal government in order to grow your business, secure funding for your nonprofit, or advance your organization's agenda? Welcome to Lobbying Insider, a podcast that brings listeners to the intersection of business and government to provide a rare perspective on how things actually get done. We will dive into some pressing current issues, provide keen observations from the past, and keep an ever-watchful eye on what's coming next. I'm your host, Zach Fink, Director of External Affairs at Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron. Glad to have you with us. Okay, so we are looking ahead to the Albany Legislative Session for 2024. It's going to kick off the second week in January when Governor Hochul delivers her State of the State Address number of issues we expect to be included in that, one of which we'll talk a little bit about, which is housing. This was kind of the big place where they came up short last year. There was a very ambitious plan. We did a deep dive in another podcast on this. But I'm joined today by two of our fellow lobbyists who handle Albany. Let's start with you, Steve. I'm Steve Melito. I run our state government relations practice in Albany. I've been with the firm since 1999 officially, but I actually have worked here on and off since I was 14 years old. Um, my dad founded the firm with Sid Davidoff and Larry Hutcher in 1975, and so I've pretty much done everything from copying to delivering packages to now being the head of the state government relations practice. I took over for my dad in 2012, been doing it ever since, and I travel back and forth from Long Island and New York City to Albany and sometimes to Washington, D.C. as well. 14 years old, that's a long time, huh? It's a long time, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what you call a career. All right, Nicole. Hi, my name is Nicole Weingartner. I've been with the firm almost 10 years in February. I focus on Albany and Long Island, especially our Long Island nonprofits, and I work under Steve. Long Island lobbyist, in fact. I am the Long Island lobbyist. It's a brand name on social media if you want to find Nicole out there. Yeah, find me on Instagram. On Instagram, okay. So we are going to probably get a lot more details, you know, in January. The governors are tend to play it very close to the vest in terms of what exactly they're going to propose. The governor comes up with a plan, an agenda for the legislative session. It then goes to the legislature. She has to then work with the leaders in both houses to get much of that agenda passed. A lot of the work gets done inside the budget, which is due on April 1. Uh, governors have a lot of power in the budget process, which is why they try to get it done as part of the budget. Uh, but let me ask you, Steve, just in, you know, you've been following Albany for years and years. You, you know the drill pretty well. Uh, what are you anticipating this year? So the state of the state traditionally is supposed to be the first Wednesday after the first Monday of the year. Um, and she's going to outline a plan uh, that is, in her mind, something that is going to be very good for all of New York. And she's going to definitely, in my opinion, assess the top issues of the day. And I think if you if you kind of identified the top three, you're probably talking cost of living. I would include housing in that. Um, and then you'd, you'd go with crime and then you'd go with asylum seekers. And so the question is, how is she going to talk to folks about those issues? And cost of living, we are now seeing new census data that shows that out-migration from New York City and New York State is actually increasing. It's getting worse. Would you say that's a tax issue or is it a more broader cost of living issue? I, I think it's it's too simple to say that it's just a tax issue. Listen, we have high taxes. There are a lot of different reasons why, but that's not the only issue here. Right. One of the issues here is going to be housing. And as I think everybody knows from last year, the governor put in her housing compact plan that 
uh, was not successful and it wound up being out of the budget. But she's going to address it again. She, you, you may have seen already that she indicated recently that she wasn't going to tackle some of the major issues that she had wanted to tackle last year in the compact, like local control. Nicole, you want to comment, like on the local control issue, that was a difficult issue. This was the housing where she talked about overriding local zoning, which was rejected uh, by people you know, in, in her own party, both in the suburbs and, and, and upstate. Right. So on Long Island, a lot of the local municipalities had an issue with this because it was very broad and it was not specific to certain types of areas. So, for example, if you look at the Wilston, East Wilston area, if you put that circumference around each train station that's supposed to have affordable housing around, it would have taken up the entire village. If you look at Garden City, half of Garden City would have been affordable housing. So we need more of a specific plan, and it, I think, has to be a little bit more regionalized. Right. I personally think a, a better plan for for this to happen is to incentivize villages and towns to do affordable housing and get some sort of tax rebate or whatever to incentivize instead of mandate it. Right. And I think that is pretty much not something she's going to push again this year, given that it was rejected. I mean, there are a number of other ancillary housing issues that have to get solved for 21A, which is a tax break given to developers, for example, to actually build more affordable housing. Perhaps it, it gets scaled back a little bit. Yeah, you know, she's clearly indicated, at least from what we can see, that she is she is going to allow local control to stay. One thing I would note is that that this governor does come from very local politics in her you know her original career as a politician, and recently there was a bill that was before her that would have allowed renewable energy, something she's very high on. Right, we'll get back to that one. Right, so. Um, <laughs> allowed a cable to come through a basically, as far as I understand it, a playground area in a local area in Long Island, and she vetoed the bill. And I, my personal opinion is that she vetoed that bill because she was very conscious of the, the need for local control over those kinds of decisions and to not have it coming from on high in Albany. So she seems to have taken a little bit of a different position. Having said that, I still think that she is very interested in trying to solve the housing issue because it remains a major, major problem. And it's something that everybody seems to poll very high. When everybody's asked about what the problems are, it's cost of living, it's housing. I can't afford to live here. I can't afford to buy anything. I can't even afford to rent anything. And I'm trying to stay here and I want to be in New York. And then how do we do that? So part of the governor's job is to start to talk to New Yorkers about that issue to say, here's how you do it. One other issue I think worth bringing up in the cost of living space is something that we're seeing with some of our clients, which is childcare. One of the things we're finding is that that job retention, retaining employees, if you find a way to offer childcare to them, that seems to be something that is having significant impact in retention. Because for the most obvious reason, right? Like if you have to constantly get your kids and you can't really do your job the full time, that's a problem. So Maybe some of this, and I, and I know the governor is moving in this direction with some with some proposals that are out there, towards allowing more businesses to have funding to offer childcare, can be very effective in helping job retention, which in turn can help people make more money and maybe help cost of living. Not to mention even people having to worry about childcare. Let's say you're it's on your mind that you have to pick a child up. You're actually a more focused worker when it's not a concern, and I think. A couple lessons coming out of the pandemic. Uh, number one, regarding childcare, I think it was learned that people can actually be productive from home. 
you know, and I think that has sort of changed the whole notion of people being in the office five days a week and working eight hours a day that you can actually get production out of people when they are working in a different environment. It doesn't actually have to be in the office. The second thing you mentioned when you were talking about uh, local control, there seems to have been a lesson learned here from this governor, but there was also, Nicole, maybe you can comment on this, a real aversion in parts of the state to mask mandates and COVID mandates. And it does seem as though some of that backlash is now being felt and the governor seems to be feeling and seeing that a little bit. Yes. You know, in Nassau County, you saw County Executive Blakeman really push against the mask mandates. And on Long Island, that's definitely a big thing. I think now, I think we've all kind of learned the lessons of COVID, right? It was brand new. No one knew what was going on. It was a scary time. Scary. People reacted, did their best, but... I think now that we know of ways to protect ourselves, I believe, and I know a lot of Long Islanders agree with me, that we will do that as an individual rather than being mandated by the government. I know there was a little bit of an uproar on Long Island regarding the governor getting her way in a court case recently where the Department of Health can tell you to quarantine, and if you don't, they can arrest you and make you quarantine. But hopefully we are not going back down that road And maybe that's used for something unseen. Yeah, there's certainly a sensitivity, I think, politically speaking, to to those types of mandates, telling people what to do. And you you mentioned, Steve, at the outset, the asylum seekers. This is a a huge issue, primarily for New York City, but it does seem as though part of that same lesson that perhaps this governor and other lawmakers have learned is you got to be very careful about sending people who are coming to New York City to other parts of the state and asking other towns and municipalities to then provide services for them. And it does seem like she's avoided doing that. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think she has. And I, I think right, wrong, and different, I think that there has been a great deal of resistance from outside of New York City right. you know, on, that, on that subject. I really think that you're, you're, you're probably you know, behind the scenes, you're probably seeing a lot of folks reaching out and saying, please, we can't handle it. We can't have any of these people coming here. We would love to take care of them, but we do not have the capacity to do this. So I think she's being mindful of that. But again, I do think she is going to talk about that and talk about the plan. Obviously, I think that to some extent, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think she's gotten a little bit of short shrift from people on how she's handled this. This was post-COVID, kind of, right? We're still sort of in the middle of COVID. It's a crisis into, you know, unto itself that she still was dealing with when she took office. Right. She was building up to speed, running a campaign, and then right when she kind of looks like maybe there's a little bit of clear sailing and we're out of this terrible moment, this 100-year thing, hopefully 100-year thing, right. out of this moment, then the asylum crisis happens. Yeah. And, and, and the mayor and the governor are being drained of financial resources and individual resources like you've never seen. And I think that, you know, a little bit of unfairness that I don't think people realize how quickly she responded and started asking for aid and asking for help from the federal government. Right. I really think that she jumped right on it. I think that her team understood this. And I think, frankly, 24-7, we're dealing with this right from the inception. And it remains a serious crisis and they are trying to navigate it. But there is no realistic way that the city or the state can afford this crisis. It has to get help from the federal government. There is just no way. That is not something that any governor should have to have resting on her shoulders to say, well, here, you're just going to pay for this. We already have a deficit that we're projected. Now, it's been reduced. The controller, Tom DiNapoli, indicated that the numbers came down, which is really great news. I also think it's it's 
it's a statement about the fact that we're getting more and more out of the pandemic and back to what New York is. And, and I think that's great news for us. But it's reduced, but there is still a deficit there. You add on the money for the asylum seekers, and the deficit is a monster. It's, quint- it's quadruple. Well, the, the asylum be. seekers alone, you're, you're talking billions of dollars. I mean, the mayor has made, yeah, I mean, the mayor has made very clear that they need help here in the city of New York. Yes. And, and I think to your point, you're right. Both the mayor and the governor, to their credit, have been very forceful about making the federal government at least try to account for some of this. But so far, they haven't had much success with getting that federal funding or even a comprehensive federal policy to stem the flow of migrants into places like New York City. It it took them an astonishingly long time just to to get to the point where they could get these people working. Yeah. And and the governor wanted them working quickly. Yeah. Yeah. She said that's a big part of this is we've got to let these people work. People are coming here to work. They want to work. Absolutely. That's why they left their circumstances, which are so awful, is is to have a better life. So I I guess the question is, is something in the budget for that anywhere near the numbers that the city is is asking for. I can't imagine it will be because I just don't think they have the capacity to do it. I think what she's going to have to do is just reassure people in the state of the state that they are working on this, that this is a top, top issue. And I think it's very important that you you tell the public what you're doing and what you're trying to do with the federal government, and that you're not going to stop. You're not going to let up because, frankly, my experience with this governor, she doesn't let up, you know. She's a fighter, and she's just going to keep fighting for this issue. She knows how important it is, and she knows she's got to get funding from the federal government. And speaking of that, we have had a lot of federal funds to play with the last several years because of COVID. The Congress passed a number of uh, comprehensive bills that that provided money, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, for example. And a lot of that money went to state governments, and a lot of that money is now dried up, which means that there's going to be this potential revenue problem. And I I guess the question you mentioned, the deficit, Steve, how does the government navigate around that? Nobody likes to cut spending or see essential services cut. Nobody likes to cut spending. Um, And everybody thinks that... And it's an election year, we should point out. And it's an election year. Lawmakers don't like to go back to their districts and say, we cut education funding, right? Yeah. It's not a good look. Yeah. It being an election year, and a reminder that it's not just an election year for state government, it's an election year for Congress as well. So, you know, everybody is going to want to make sure that there are dollars flowing to the appropriate spots. You know, at the end of the day, there's probably going to have to be more debt service out there. You know, I mean, it's 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 just going to be something creative. She has a new budget director in Blake Washington. He's been around for a long time. Came from the assembly. He came from the assembly. He is a very, very well-respected person in Albany, somebody that everybody in in the government, around the government knows well. Nice guy. It's also amazing. You you can both attest to this. How few people can do that job, right? right? I mean, it is an enormously complex job to be budget director. Well, you could see, I mean, Robert Mujica did the job for, for two governors and, you know, for a very, very long time. And they had a hard time replacing him, and they finally convinced Blake to come over and do it. But I, I think that that's really great news because I think that there were a lot of folks in in Albany saying, we hope Blake gets this opportunity because he's going to do a great job. So I think that she has that going for her, to be perfectly honest. She has a, a he's guy a good who steady knows hand. how to – he's yes. a good steady hand. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and obviously, we're you know Blake is is coming into a job. It's so much bigger when you're dealing with the executive branch, right? I mean, obviously, when you're when you're budget director for one house, that's a huge, enormous responsibility. But it's that much greater when you're doing it from the executive side. I think sometimes people don't realize just how massive New yeah. York State government is. It's really big. There are a lot of huge agencies that are filled with a lot of employees across the state, and you know they're not just in Albany. They're everywhere, and so. 
it is it is something you have to wrap your arms around. But I I, I have really very little doubt that he's he's going to be able to do that. He'll succeed very well, and he's got a great team under him too. And yeah. then like an hour working with him, we know that he's very supportive of education. He's very supportive of nonprofits. So in a time where there needs to be cuts, I'm hoping that he will be the one standing there for our clients saying, well, we're not going to cut from them. Yeah, no, just to give you a, a sense of the scope, right? I mean, you're talking about a more than $200 billion state budget. A lot of the funding is set. You can't even really, you know, scale back that much. Education, healthcare, debt service. And then there's this small discretionary pie, which is kind of the pie piece of the pie everybody's fighting over, right? It's <laughs> so an allocation of that amount of money. But it's a very enormously important because budgets are a statement of priorities. And I, I think a lot of jockeying goes on in the lead up to that April 1 deadline. You know, it's funny, you know, over the years you get this whole, this whole like concept of the big bad lobbyist coming in and, and <laughs> you know, and, and meanwhile, you know, Nicole and I are consistently fighting for things like I'll give you an example of, of one that's just such a wonderful labor of love is the Henry Viscardi School for the severely physically disabled and medically frail, right? These are children that could not have gone to school 20 years ago. They would have been homeschooled because of the lack of technology, yeah. right? Technology is now advanced in such a way that you have children coming to school that that can only use their left eye to, and that's like the only part of their body that they can use to actually communicate with people. And they are getting high school diplomas and going on to college. I mean, it's breathtaking. It's ma it, I describe it every time I go there as a magical experience. And we're constantly looking for funding for them which is, by the way, lobbying, right? Which, I mean, to be very is, clear, like, like to your no point question. earlier, right, lobbying has a connotation of you're helping out, you know, corporations or whatever else. It's also helping out a lot of people who need help. Genuinely need help. I mean, we work for the, on the AIDS issue, right? So with the, with, with, I'm talking about the, the uh, individual AIDS that they have. Right. So a lot of our clients on Long Island are small nonprofits um, or, and larger nonprofits, but they're the ones that need the money so that they can continue to operate. Right. So year after year, we go to the governor and go to Albany asking for $903,000 because of a situation that happened with the state education department years ago. And when this change happened after state ed demanded it, they fell into a deficit of $903,000. Basically, if we don't get that for them every year, Henry Viscardi cannot exist. Right. And these are literally kids who are coming in an ambulance from Austin, New York, to Albertson, Long Island, in Nassau County, right? Like Mineola area. So obviously, it's a very special place for these families, the staff members, the students. And then if, say... God forbid, it was wiped off the map. These kids are either being homeschooled or they're going out of state. Yeah. So I feel, in in my opinion, those are the nonprofits we should be protecting. Right. Because especially if they are so unique that you cannot, ha you can't just transfer them to another school district. Right. And, and and in some respects, some of the most vulnerable. Right. I mean that. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot of our clients. For example, our client, SEO Family Services, operates the Tyree Learning Center and the Robert J. McMahon residential facility for children that have a very low IQ. So on one end of the campus, that's where they live. On the other end of the campus, that's where they go to school. If this campus doesn't exist, they cannot go to any other place on Long Island, no less New York. So these families are dependent on services that some of these nonprofits provide. And if 
they don't exist anymore, we're going to lose them. Okay, no, it's a, it's a really good point. And, and let me ask both of you. I mean, when it comes to belt tightening, just in, in previous situations that, that you've seen, it, do the nonprofits tend to suffer? I mean, are they fighting that much harder for, for their share of, of state funding? Generally speaking, what happens is that everybody gets cut, right? Yeah. So the smaller pieces get the same percentage cut. Maybe it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're cutting, God forbid, 10, 000, you know, you know, 10% of something. It's a question of proportion, absolutely. It, it's, yeah. a, it's a huge number for yeah. somebody that's getting a million dollars in funding to lose $100,000 is just a disaster. Right. I mean, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's just very difficult for, for agencies to be able to sustain those kinds of losses. Obviously this year we're hoping that that does not happen. And, you know, again, I think that that's going to be a testament to how they're going to navigate this. They've, I, I really do have confidence they're going to do a good job. And frankly, it is an election year and it's really important. And that goes back to the asylum issue, the crime issue, the cost of living issue, the housing issue, all of that stuff. You have a lot of Democrats who are running for office in the suburbs that are very wary of these issues and very concerned with how is this governor going to approach them. And I think she is very conscious of that. And I did want to ask you about another client, Metropolitan. And do you think that's going to be a big fight? Just give us kind of a primer on, on what the issue is and what the concern is. Yeah, sure. We had the, the pleasure of representing the Metropolitan Package Store Association for uh, well over a decade now. That is, package stores are liquor stores, right. uh, wine and spirits across the state. And they have regularly had an issue that is frankly the third rail for them, which is called wine in groceries that a lot of people may have seen recently because supermarkets like Wegmans and maybe even Costco will step into this, have been pushing people to say, you want, you know, don't you want wine in grocery stores? And the recent poll said that everybody does. It's like 70%. Of course they do. I mean, if I'm you, not surprised. It depends on how you ask the question too, right? <laughs> you Every, say to somebody, you know, would you like to be able to do your shopping here? And then, of course, right? <laughs> you know, and it's number, it's number 27 on a Siena poll that the 26 questions before are about Donald Trump's hair. Right. I mean, you know, it's, and then all of a sudden, do you want wine in grocery stores? I mean, everybody wants wine in grocery stores. By the time they get to question 27, they could use a glass of wine, yeah, no frankly. Kidding. And right. then you find out that Wegmans was paying for the poll anyway. Right. Right. And, and Wegmans just opened a store in Brooklyn, right? Was that Wegmans just opened a store? So that, that, that is going to be a push there as well, I think. They're, they're you know, stepping up their, their lobbying game. Yeah, and so you know, we keep coming back to what's the real question. And the real question is, really, it's not the simple question of, do you want wine and grocery stores? I understand why people want convenience. Everybody wants convenience. The real question is, do you want wine and grocery stores knowing that the local package store owner, the guy who, you know, the, the man or woman who you've been buying from ever on your street corner is almost definitely going to go out of business if that happens. Right. Do you, do you know, another way of asking it, do you want your selection dramatically reduced? Do you want the cost? Do you, are, are you willing to trade cost for convenience? Because in places like Washington State, you've had a situation where Costco took over the whole state and has wine and groceries there. And it is, it is some of the highest taxed products and the most expensive products in the country. And they don't have the most amazing selection that you would kind of hope that they would. And it paves the way for big box stores, like you're saying, in other words, and putting kind of mom 100%. and pops out of business, right? Yep. And it, in, in my humble opinion in this state, we need less big box and we need more local entrepreneurs. We need people who are business owners. And what's going to happen is the 3,500 liquor stores in New York State, there are 3,500 of them, by the way, almost 700 on Long Island alone, uh, 2,500 in New York City. So there are a lot of liquor stores in New York State. And these are all small mom and you know, they're, they're all small communi communi-owned yeah. yeah. local businesses. Right. That's what they are. And you're going to put 
so many of them, you'll put at least half of them out of business overnight. I mean, and you know, you get the feedback from the other side that we're being sensational and we're, we're a little bit over the top, but then you look at Colorado and Colorado did this in November of 2022. No, so not that long ago. And a most recent survey of retail liquor stores in Colorado says that they are all down between 10 and 60%. Wow, so we have that data already. They've already indicated that the supermarkets already control 40% of all wine sales. And one of the other things they say is, well, it's just wine. And the joke is that that's really the profit center. So sure, yeah. it's just wine. It's just our profit center. Right. So right. the margins are not that high in liquor stores to begin with. And, and I guess where we're leading with this is we are, as you might imagine, based on what we just said, we are very hopeful that this governor does not propose wine and grocery stores in her budget. Is it a bigger threat this year it. than in previous years? I mean, you've been fighting this fight for a long time, so. I, I do. We haven't, had, we haven't had it appear in a budget since Governor David Patterson put it in the budget uh, when he was governor, and that was a war. We are very hopeful that this governor does not put it in the budget. We are very hopeful that, you know, there are two pieces of legislation, one in the Assembly, one in the House, same bills. And, and you know, that, that's going to be a fight no matter what. Yeah. There's going to be an effort to drive those bills and pass them. We know that. But putting it in the budget makes it a real serious pitched battle because now it's in the governor's document. And, they, the and the governor stands behind it and, and will fight for it, presumably. Yeah, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's so a, it's a tough spot. Yeah. So fingers crossed that it's not. Uh, finally, we're running out of time here, but I do want to bring up one thing. I would still argue, and I'm certainly not the first person to say, that, say this, that the number one charge of government is public safety and the protection of the citizenry. Obviously, we've seen a rise in anti-Semitism and hate crimes, Islamophobia. Uh, do you think the governor is going to address this at the outset just to let people know the government is thinking of them, is looking for ways to protect them? To your point, Zach, this governor absolutely understands that her first priority is to make people feel safe. Right. You know, it's reassurance. And this is the issue of the moment, right? October 7th happened. Everything that's happened since, it is ongoing every day. The war in Israel. There right. are protests. There is violence. And she has to make a statement. And I will say this to her credit. And again, I think she deserves the credit. She was immediately out in the news denouncing everything that happened right out of the gate. Yeah. And so, you know, she's, it's a tightrope. It's a difficult space. This is a terrible space. Anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, everybody polled says that they're feeling that it's higher and that it's worse than it's ever been. And it is a tragic moment right now. And and for her, she is definitely going to address this. There is no debating it. She's going to say something about it. I think she's going to have to direct, especially CUNY and SUNY, because that's what she can actually uh, dictate right, to, right. is what is going to happen. Right, right. Because as we just saw yesterday, where we had Ivy League uh, college presidents kind of not answering questions in front of Congress, there needs to be accountability that if this doesn't if there's an incident on campus and this, these protocols aren't followed, what is what's going to happen? Because we can't keep skirting around the issue of hurting someone else's feelings. Right. right? And, and, we, and we saw actually recent NYPD statistics show that while overall crime is down, hate crimes are in fact up. So mm -hmm. that, that, is, that is year to date numbers. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank both of you for joining. This was really enlivened and uh, informative. I appreciate both of your input. Thanks, Zach. It's our pleasure. Okay, we'll be back Thanks, soon Zach. with another episode of Lobbying Insider Podcast. 
The Lobbying Insider is a production of Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron, LLP, New York's premier middle market law firm, practicing in over 20 areas, including commercial litigation, economic development, real estate, and of course, government relations. The Lobbying Insider is produced by Joe Benti, and our sound recording engineer is Devante Addison. Publicity by Jody Fisher PR with Beth Ann Mayer at Lemon Seed Creative Managing Social Media. Our podcast platform manager is Monica Thomas. I'm Zach Fink, host of the podcast, and if you'd like to help us spread the word about our show, please share it with colleagues and friends, and be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice. It can be found on Apple, Audible, Google, iHeart, Podbean, and Spotify platforms. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.